2017 um, is in the history books. For, for some of you, it was a good year, a, a memorable year. Perhaps, like Peyton, you, you became a, a Christian. Or, or, or someone else for whom you have prayed a long time came to faith uh, in, in Christ. And, and for that person, it was nothing less than miraculous. You were sick, and God healed you, or perhaps someone close to you. You, you finally gathered the courage to, to come to Freedom Farm, and it's been a good year. Uh, oh, oh, oh he, he, or he healed a, a long estranged relationship with a family member. Speaking of relationships, your relationship with God was, was good last year. I mean, you read through the Bible. You prayed. <laughs> he even answered some of your prayers. It was a good year. You graduated from high school or college. You got married. Everyone knows that first year is good. You had a, a baby, the apple of your eye, or maybe that baby finally graduated from college. You, you, got, you got a new job. You got a promotion. You got a, a good pay raise. You bought a new car or a new house. Stock market is at an all-time high. It was a good year. It was one for the history books. And so it's, it's kind of easy to, to come to church and smile and sing all of those upbeat Christian songs about how good God is. He's a good, good father. Yay. Like a pep rally. But for others of you, maybe many, you're f- frankly glad that 2017 is history. It, it's a year that you will always remember, but for very different reasons. Truth be told, the only thing for which you are thankful about last year is that it is finally over. You, you, you could not bear the thought of repeating it. Even perhaps directing your thoughts toward it right now brings you great pain, sorrow, grief, anxiety. You're depressed, if you were honest, struggling, desperately hoping, praying that 2018 is better. You lost a child. You lost a parent, a brother or a sister. You lost a job. You lost your marriage. You lost your health. And you ask quietly, well, you know, because you can't say it aloud, not here. Is it supposed to be this way? And, and through it all, you're wondering, if you were honest, where has God been? Why has He been so absent, so silent? Your prayers have become routine, mundane, empty, or non existent. I mean, because does he hear? And if he hears, does he ever answer? Does he even care? And further truth be told, you're wondering if it's all worth it. You're wondering whether Christianity really even works, whatever that means. Maybe you're considering quitting the whole thing. I mean, if you were honest. But the only reason that you're here today is because you were here last week and and the week before. But for you, there is no life and certainly no hope. Perhaps you've begun to understand Christianity doesn't make everything peachy. 
you came to faith in Christ and things didn't get better. In fact, much got worse. Things are not good. You can't say it. Got to wear the mask here. I mean, what would people think? Oh, and you would never quit. But you're just going through the motions, depressing week after week, month after month, and for some of you, year after year. Statistics show that depression and anxiety are at an all-time high um, in our country. Counselors and therapists are overrun. Psychiatric hospitals can't meet the growing demand and regularly turn people away. One of our elders said just last Wednesday, the next major expansion of Cannon Hospital is to add beds to the psychiatric ward. Self-medication through illegal drugs and alcohol are rampant. Why some states have even approved the use of so-called recreational marijuana, that should help. It's a picture of our culture, you see. Prescription antidepressants are found in almost every family's medicine cabinet. According to the latest statistics available, Published last August, the National Center for Health Statistics says antidepressant use has skyrocketed, skyrocketed by 65% in the last 15 years. Why? Such that 13% over the age of 12 use them. One in six Americans has actually prescribed some kind of psychiatric drug to include anxiety medications. One in six. Friday, day before yesterday, NBC Health News, in response to this epidemic and in conjunction with the new year, offered the following suggestions to, quote, reverse course and change unhealthy habits for good. You may want to write these down. First, Exercise your willpower. Just say no or yes. Has, has that ever worked for you? Just breathe. <laughs> Ready? Everybody together. In. Imagine what success looks like. Be your own best friend. I found that one interesting. It seems to me that you would need drugs to do that. Set your sights right. Find your why. Now, I must admit, I did not read the paragraphs that were associated with each one of these on the list. I have no idea what find your why means. Seems deeply philosophical. Buddy up. That seems reasonable. Have fun and stay positive. Isn't that why we're doing the drugs? Get more workout motivation. <laughs> I like that one. doesn't say join the gym. That won't do you any good. <laughs> you got to be motivated to go. Wow, if only I had known. Please notice how me-focused most of these suggestions are because, frankly, that's the only thing the world has to offer. You. The answer to your problems is to be a better you. And at the end of 2018, you will still be you. 
and you will still live in a broken world. Listen, as it relates to some of this, do not misunderstand me. I, I do understand that and, and believe that there is a place for prescription medication. I, I, okay, I get that. I'm not sure about the epidemic of them, but I get it. But my question, one question is simply this. Are, are, are they or these suggestions the ultimate answer to the challenges of life? Is that it? Is that all we got? Especially for believers in Jesus Christ. Last week, we began a new book, Hebrews, where the readers were facing some rather severe difficulties. Some had become disenfranchised or, dare I say, even bored with their new faith, and so they had begun neglecting their salvation They'd stopped growing in their faith. Some had deserted their Christian family. Some had even deserted their faith. To be true, some had paid significant costs because of the new faith. They'd lost homes. They'd lost family members, social status, and acceptability. And there appeared to be on the horizon potential loss of life, martyrdom for their faith. And as a result, they were thinking about... Well, maybe what some of you have been thinking about, quitting. Maybe Christianity isn't worth it after all. Maybe it doesn't really work. Maybe a return to their old way of life, their old faith, which really wasn't that bad, was enticing. In fact, some had already quit and and returned. And again, the, the question, does this... Christian faith really work? Does it have the answers? And so, the author of Hebrews writes to both encourage and, frankly, to warn them. In fact, his warnings are some of the strongest in the New Testament. He says things like, chapter 2, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift, so we don't drift away. You know, one day became two, or I didn't read, where three, four, and next thing you know, it's been weeks since I talked to God and gathered with the church. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Chapter 3, take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's writing to Christians and, and fall away from the living God, but, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't let it capture you. Chapter 4, this is interesting. Therefore, let us fear. What? I thought Christians didn't fear. Let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to come short of it. (laughs) What in the world does that mean? Does does that mean I can be on the road to the celestial city and not make it? It's a little scary. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. Chapter 5, concerning him, that's Melchizedek, we have much to say and it it's kind of hard to explain. So, since you have become dull, drifting, falling, you're dull. 
for, through, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have, become, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I don't know about you, but that sounds like he's calling us a bunch of babies. Chapter 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and then those, the ones that fall away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. That's ominous. What do you do with that? That's a warning. Thinking about quitting? Read those verses. Chapter 10, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation, that sounds fearful to me, of judgment. These are hard words, brothers and sisters, and perhaps just what some of us need to hear. Yep, been wondering, been wondering if it's worth it, kind of dropped out, show up on occasion. Don't read anymore. Can't remember the last time I prayed. Maybe you need to hear these warnings and wake up. That's kind of hard, Scott. It's Bible. But, but, but the author also gives us some faithful words of encouragement. Yeah, consider these. Chapter 2. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, uh, had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. High priest, in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people, uh, for the people, for since he himself was tempted in all that in which he has suffered, Jesus suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So are you struggling? Are you suffering? Are you tempted to quit? He's there for you. That's what he's saying. Chapter 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest, there it is again, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, so, so what good does that do to me? Okay, he was sinless. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's glorious news. Chapter 6, you know, right, when he, right after he said it's impossible to renew them to repentance, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest. There it is again, high priest forever. Chapter 10, right before he talks about how uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but only fearful judgment. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place uh, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, and since we have a great priest, there it is again, for the house, over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. On and on, the author just switches back and forth between warning and encouragement, warning and encouragement. Press on, persevere. In the midst of challenges and, and heartaches and difficulty and loss and, 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 and threats and, and seeming hopelessness and the mundane challenges of, of, of life, press on, brothers and sisters, because you do have what it takes. You have a great high priest. You do. 
Did you notice, by the way, that our hope is not found inward? <laughs> it's not found by looking at ourselves, d- d- dwelling on our miserable circumstances, exercising our willpower, or becoming our own best friend. It is found in fixing our eyes firmly on Jesus. And, and did you notice how Jesus is the Son of God and our great high priest. The author's encouragement throughout this letter is that Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. He, is, he uses the word better 13 times in this book. He's certainly better than returning to a Christless way of life. He, even if, if, if that way of life is a religious life, even if that religious life was Judaism, Jesus, listen to me, is better. Why would you go back? Why? Brings us to our text this morning. Right out of the gates, the author lays the groundwork, listen to me, the groundwork for the rest of his letter. Here it is, Jesus is better. Don't quit. And by the way, while we're on it, the best is yet to come. All of those Old Testament saints kept their eyes fixed on the promise, though they never saw its fulfillment. We have seen its fulfillment. We are to keep our eyes fixed on the fulfillment. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's coming back. The author begins his letter in a most unconventional way, as we saw last week, without identifying himself or his recipients. No, he he begins rather with the central figure of Scripture, Jesus, the very Son of God. The way he begins this letter is stunning. The first four verses actually form one sentence in the Greek. Look at it with me. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4 say this, one sentence, God After he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much better, uh, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they take a breath. This is a most glorious passage of Scripture, and it exalts Jesus to the highest degree. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached this particular text in May 1882, he began with these words, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. That's what I will do today, because Jesus and his supremacy is the answer to all of our pains and sorrow, and grief, and difficulties, and challenges, and loss in life. He's it. I have nothing else for you. Neither does anybody else. He, therefore, deserves our faithful adoration and glory, and then in exchange, we get joy and fulfillment. Our outline will go like this. We're going to see God's final revelation in His Son and then the supremacy of His Son. We glanced at that first point last week when we rejoiced in the truth that God spoke. We are not left to wonder or wander in the dark. God has revealed Himself to us. Here the author draws a contrast between God's past revelation as found under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and His final revelation as found under the New Covenant in the New Testament in His Son. Look at the, look at the contrast. God spoke when? Long ago 
That is in the past, but now in these last days, in the present, he has spoken to whom? Well, before it was to the fathers, but now he's actually spoken to to, to us. And by whom? Before, in, in the past, he spoke through the prophets, but now to us, he has actually spoken in his son. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. Again, this speaks of God's revelation through the Old Testament to the fathers as a way of, of speaking of their ancestors. We, we remember that the, primary, the author's primary audience were Jewish believers. Remember, he spoke to your ancestors, Jewish ancestors. God used prophets to, to speak his truth in a variety of ways. Notice in many portions, many ways, God moved or, or prompted prophets to write by his spirit. He spoke through history, through visions and dreams, and through his actual voice, and, and through writing, remember, with his own finger. Once through a donkey, once through thunder and lightning at the top of Mount Sinai, once through a st- small, still voice at Horeb, which is like Sinai, same place. God used a variety of ways to communicate his self-revelation to us. But now, but now, hold on to your horses. In these last days, he has spoken to us in, literally, in son, in his son. These last days refers to the time extending from the ascension of Christ to his return. He has spoken to us, that is, those under the new covenant, which Jesus came to bring. We'll talk about that in the months to come. God spoke or or revealed this new covenant or New Testament to us in his son. Now, now to be clear, that's not to say that there was something wrong with the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It was just, well, it was just partial or, or, or incomplete or progressive, unfulfilled, until Jesus came as its fulfillment and its supreme and final expression. You you see, another thing we're going to find is that the Old Testament pointed specifically and directly to Jesus. So the Old Testament looked forward to the promises to be fulfilled in Jesus. We look back to the promises having been fulfilled in Jesus. Every once in a while, I hear someone say, man, I'd sure like to have been alive, you know, when, when, when the prophets walked the earth or when those, when, when those guys did miracles and things like that and see an axe head float and something. Like, man, I'd sure like to do that. Let me tell you, you're living in the best time ever because you are living in the time of fulfilled promise in Jesus. It doesn't get any... It doesn't get any better. He's greater because he's the fulfillment of all that, the, all that to which the angels and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and the priesthood and the high priest and the sacrifices pointed. It's all about him. God has spoken to us in fulfillment in his son. But now having mentioned the son, the author changes subjects. We have been talking about God speaking, but now the focus zeroes in on the Son. Brings us to that second point, the supremacy of the Son. The author lists seven things about Jesus and and highlights his his greatness, which lays actually the foundation for the rest of the book. These seven are likely intentional since he follows that with seven Old Testament quotes which speak of Jesus. And then we remember, oh, the number seven is the number of perfection in the Scripture. We have the perfect high priest. Because he's the very son of God. Look at these verses with me. Verse, uh, uh, look at these seven things, verses two and three. First, he is appointed heir of all things. God has appointed his son heir. That's no doubt an allusion to Psalm 2, which says that God will give his son the, the nations in his, as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. But here we go one step further. He is the heir of all things. He will inherit everything 
We, we remember that the, the, the firstborn had the right of inheritance and as God's only firstborn son, he will inherit everything. Incredibly, listen, are you ready? Incredibly, that includes us. Those who believe in Jesus. You see, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that, you will, so that we will know what is the hope of his calling. Listen, what are the riches, the riches of his inheritance? Where? In the saints. You are the riches of, God's in, of Christ's inheritance. This is incredible. In the midst of all of your struggles, in the midst of all of your trials, in the midst of all your difficulties and loss, you are Christ's treasure. It's unbelievable. I know you never think this, but mom or dad die. I hope I get. What is it that you hope you get? Jesus got you. This can be a bit confusing at first glance. Wasn't Jesus already God, one with the Father, and therefore wasn't he already? What is this inheritance thing? Wasn't he already the owner of everything? Yes. But the author is making a point concerning Jesus eternally being the Son of God, but becoming our great high priest through his finished work on the cross. And having completed the work that the Father gave him to do, he now inherits everything, again, to include us. And again, not in this text, but since we belong to him, we also inherit everything. We are co-heirs with Christ. That is amazing. Life tough? The the market not doing well for you? You are a co-heir with Jesus. Second, through him, God made the world. Actually, the the word world is ages and speaks uh, of all things in time and space. It's consistent with John 1 and Colossians 1, which claim that Jesus was the agent of God's creative action. God created the world through his son, Jesus. Look at those passages in John 1, Colossians 1. All things came into being through him. That's the word. That's Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1. For by him, all things were created. Then he gives us a list. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible. Then he gives us the angelic order, uh, 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 thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, doesn't matter what it is, have been created through him. And notice, for him. Because it's all about him. Interesting phrase. All things were created through him and for him because God appointed that he would be the heir of all things. And so everything he created is his. That means you. Third, and the next two are incredibly important. I, could, I cannot stress how important three and four are. We could spend, listen, listen, we could spend the rest of our lives in points three and four. He is the radiance of his glory. That is, Jesus is the effulgence, the radiance, the expression of God's glory. Some translations have it, I think, mistakenly, that he is the reflection of his glory, somewhat like the the moon reflects the glory of the sun. That is not the author's point. God has spoken, revealed himself most fully, most supremely, most completely in his son, who is God in the flesh and shares the radiance of God's glory. You want to see God look at Jesus? That's what he's saying. Now listen. There is a teaching out there, it's pretty, pretty becoming quite common. 
There's a teaching out there that when Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of his deity when he came to this earth. I want to say this very gently, but as firmly as I can, that is pure, unadulterated heresy. Jesus still possessed all of the attributes of deity. When Paul says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, there's no direct object, he simply means that he emptied himself of the glorious display of his still possessed attributes. He was fully man with full deity. He was fully man and fully God, such that John could say in chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him or made him known or revealed him because he is the radiance of his glory. So if you ever hear anybody say those words, Jesus emptied himself of his deity, run as fast as you can. Or we could burn him at the stake. It's your choice. (laughs) Just kidding. Next, he is the exact exact representation of his nature. This is an incredible statement. The word is used of an imprint or a a die for a coin or a a seal. The stamped coin is the exact imprint of the die. So also Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God's nature. The word is only used here in the New Testament. It's the word from which we get our word character. He is the exact character of God's nature such that, that Jesus could actually say to Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. This is one of the clearest declarations of the full deity of Jesus Christ. You see how I said we could spend the rest of our lives in points three and four. It's glorious. Five, he created the world, indeed the universe, and continues to uphold or sustain it by the word of his power or by his powerful word. This is a similar statement to, to Paul's in Colossians 1.17. In him, all things hold together. So if Jesus, listen, in him, he holds together the universe. If he emptied himself of his deity when he came to this earth, the universe would have blown apart. Even while he walked this earth, he was holding the universe together by his powerful word. This means more than that Jesus just holds the world up uh, on his massive shoulders like Atlas. No, rather, most explain the words imply that by his power, he is guiding all things to their appointed end. Don't miss that. He not only sustains the world, he upholds it and is accomplishing his perfect purposes for it. That means for you. Even in the midst of all of your challenges, he is bringing you to your appointed end. And it's good. Six, this son of God who is the heir of all things, who made all things, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, who is upholding the universe by his power. This very God made purification of sins for us. This is an incredible statement. And the author will, will have much to say about Christ purifying. This is the word that he uses, the purification, this purifying work in our lives. He, he will make clear that Jesus is the only one who could have done that. We were sinners living in rebellion against God. And if God in the person of his son did not step in and do something about our miserable condition, no one else could. No one else could. Wasn't there some other way for God? No.
How did he make purification? By himself becoming the substitute and sacrifice for our sins through his cleansing blood. blood. Right at the beginning, the author is tipping his hat to this high priestly work of Christ. Finally, having completed his work, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an allusion to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus quoted that in Matthew 26 when he was standing before the Sanhedrin. He says, the next time you see me, you'll see me seated at the right hand of the Father, coming in the clouds of glory, and it made him so mad because they knew what he was saying. They killed him for it. Majesty on high was another way of speaking of the Father. The right hand is a place of highest honor and power, and the fact that he sat down indicates that his work is finished. There, there remains no more work to be done. That's why you can't leave Christianity. There isn't anything else, else out there for you. The author will make a big deal about this later, so I won't elaborate other than to say under the old covenant, the priests made sacrifices while standing. No seats in the temple. Read through the temple furniture, no seats. They did their work year after tedious year while standing. But Jesus, having made the complete, supreme, and full sacrifice, sat down. It's finished. That means it's finished for you. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it in the... It's finished. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. It's finished. God has purchased you. So, verse 4, since Jesus is and has done and is doing all of these things rather perfectly, he has become much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Again, this at first reading can appear confusing. Jesus has become better than the angels. Hasn't he always been better than the angels? Yes, he has. Remember, he created them, all things in heaven and on earth, the, the, the angelic authorities. But, but again, the author is talking about God's ultimate and, and final revelation through his son, through his finished work. He has always been and always will be the glorious son of God. But now, through his work, he becomes the great high priest. And as such, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. We will talk about that more next week as he quotes those seven Old Testament passages, but we remember the words of Philippians 2. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, that's heaven, earth, and hell. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. The ultimate, listen, I'm done. Almost. The ultimate answer to life's difficulties and challenges and grief and sorrow and pain is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. But it's most glorious. The author of Hebrews will spend the rest of the book proving it. Let me close with this illustration. One of the most oft-quoted works is the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Many of you have read the series, as have I, twice. In the allegory, Jesus is represented by the great lion Aslan. In one particular scene, Lucy, the youngest of the four main human characters, sees Aslan shining white and huge in the moonlight. In a burst of emotion, Lucy rushes to him, burying her face in his rich mane, lying between his two large paws. She, she gazes up at his large, wise face. 
And this conversation happens. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is my passion for, for us, for, for you. That in this new year, in this new study, with last year, now in the history books, this year, you will find Jesus bigger in the answer to all of your needs and, and grief and sorrow and pain and disappointment and challenge and trial. He's bigger. Let's stand for prayer. Father, indeed, this is a most glorious text because it points us to the solution that plagues all of our lives. The solution of sin, the solution of sorrow. Jesus is our great high priest and he is the answer. And so my prayer is that he would become bigger, better. Not that he is bigger, not that he is better. He is infinitely big and infinitely best. But in our lives, I pray that he will become bigger and better as we know him more. In Jesus' name, amen.